0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. you are worshiped to the study of God's Word. Go and grab your Bibles, your devices. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. We're gonna begin in verse 29 this morning. I know last week I said we do all of chapter 34. That's because I was tired. and didn't know what I was talking about. We've got five verses more this morning. But the truth is we're not gonna land there very long. So on the screen is another section of verses we're gonna cover this morning. So we're gonna cover five verses in Exodus and then two whole chapters in 2 Corinthians because I think we have to, to understand what's happening here. This is a pretty well-known passage of scripture if you've been in church for any period of time. It's not gonna be a shock to you what's happening here, but I don't want us to gloss over the miraculous thing that's happening in this passage. I don't know if you're like me, but um, the more I follow Jesus, the more God um, has to shake me to remind me that I'm not there yet. So this past weekend, I'm coaching um, fourth and fifth grade flag football, um, which is a lot of fun, a little bit frustrating, but a lot of fun. And, um, so I'm coaching that for our crossover, uh, ministry. And so Friday night, we got a chance with our fourth and fifth graders to play on the big field at Ola high school. They were pumped about it. It was a lot of fun and I was excited. I was in a great mood. Um, I knew we'd probably lose. we were missing a few players and I thought it'd be nice to let Micah's team win. Cause he's in charge, uh, the assistant director of crossover. I was like, we'll just let him win. So I was in a good mood about it and we succeeded. We let him win and it was great. And, uh, it was a lot of fun, we just had a blast. And then, so we get home late, another game after that, we get home late Friday night, and then Saturday morning, uh, we're playing again, fourth and fifth graders, against this team that, uh, they, they just win everything. They're really, really good, really well coached. And so, um, but I caught myself, at uh, halftime, we're winning. Like, unexpectedly, we're winning. And I feel like I was excited about it, praising our team. And then we just kind of fell apart in the second half. And I caught myself getting really, really frustrated with fourth and fifth graders playing flag football at a church league. Like like controlling my heart, like I could not. And then I'm frustrated with the other team. They're just so good. And then they've got middle schoolers over there cheering their team on and not ours. I'm like, what's your problem? Why can't you cheer our kids on? And then I'm trying to figure out how he's cheating, but he's not cheating. I'm doing all the things. I get in the car and I'm like, what has happened to me? Like what in the world just happened out there? You know, like it was a lot of fun Friday night and Saturday I was, I just thought I was Kirby smart and I don't understand what's happening. It's a lot for me to say that as a Florida fan, but I just, I really felt like that's who I was. Um, But what has to happen sometimes is the Lord has to shake us a little bit to remind us that you're not there yet. Like you don't have it all figured out. Like I've worked really hard to not be as competitive as I used to be. I've worked really hard at it um, because sports brings out the unchristian in me and I got to be very careful. And so this morning, here's what I want want us to be careful here as we read this passage to allow ourselves to be shaken um, out of where we think that we are. Because in these few verses, it's not going to do much there, but when we get into Corinthians, we're going to have to be careful there to make sure we don't make this about somebody else as the temptation often is. Let's read Exodus chapter 34. Let's read verses 29 through 35, then we'll jump to 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from heaven. Remember, he went back up a second time because he broke the tablets the first time. The people were worshiping a golden calf. He goes up to intercede. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights, no, no food or drink. And he comes down with the new tablets of the testimony in his hand as he had come down from the mountain. And Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. It's important. His face shone because he had been talking to God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and they're ready for the hammer to be dropped. And behold, the skin on his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and Moses commanded them all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. He reminded them, the Lord is a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for thousands upon thousands, and for giving the iniquity for generations. But he will, he will hold the guilty responsible for their sin to the third and fourth generation. He recites all of that to them. Verse 33, whenever Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord at the tent of meeting, which we looked at in the previous chapters, to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses was indeed shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. And that's all we get. And then from there, we just move on to Sabbath regulations. That's kind of what happens. So that's all we get. So in these five or six verses, there's a lot happening that we have to be careful of. First of all is this, his skin was literally shining. It's not a euphemism for, oh, you're glowing. He was literally glowing, literally glowing. When he comes down from the mountain, there's a number of questions that arise for me and maybe they do for you as well. Like, first of all, I want to know why. Why was his face shining? And we get he spent time with God, that's fine, but like glowing, shining. What happened up there? What was on the mountain? What did he eat? Even though he wasn't eating, just all kinds of questions I have. And then I want to know why the veil, though. Like, why? Why put the veil on? Because in doing student ministry and college ministry for a number of years, the thing we would always tell students is never, never cover the light that God has for you. We'd sing a song, right? This little light of mine, hide it under a bushel? No not hide it behind a veil sure Moses did I'm gonna let it shine that's not how we sing so why hide why that that's confusing to me and then why take it off when you go into God to speak with God but then put it back on when you come out it's kind of weird and then it gets even weirder when you understand the Hebrew word for shine here that his face shined could also mean that it had horns that horns came out of his face which is a whole other thing that we have to wrestle with like what horns why but it makes the veil make more sense doesn't it like that makes a lot more sense (laughs) So just a ton of questions that unfortunately are not answered here in Exodus 34. I mean, so many questions that just aren't answered. So we struggle. And so what happens then when we don't know things is to make it say something that it doesn't actually say. And that's what a number of pastors and commentators have done. But what's beautiful about the Bible is that the Bible often answers the questions you have about itself if you would just keep reading right? That's why we can't take things out of context, That's why we can't just study three or four verses at a time. We've got to know the entire context of that passage, of that book, of that section that it's in in Scripture, then of the overall narrative of the Bible. And so what's beautiful about this is that the Bible answers its own questions. So if you would turn to 2nd Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to do the bulk of the teaching out of here because Paul, the author of Corinthians, references back to this moment. He's pretty profound as to what he says is actually happening here. So 2 Corinthians is actually maybe the third or fourth letter, probably the third letter written to the church at Corinth. A number of crazy things happening there. They've got Judaizers who have come in, Judaizers wanting to convert Gentile Christians to Jewish Christians from adherence to the Jewish law. You've got all kinds of sexual misconduct going on here. They don't know how to do communion well. It's, It's just kind of a mess. And Paul is very bold in the things that he says to them. And in fact, in this in-between letter, he must have said some pretty harsh things because he says in 2 Corinthians how they received it, and hopefully it spurred them on towards repentance. But there's this passage here that I think is going to help us understand what's happening in Exodus 34. So keep Exodus 34 in your mind. Keep the images in your mind. Let's read 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 5. Not that we, so speaking of him and his, uh, his helpers on this missionary journey, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So now, Paul's gonna give this great dissertation on what is the old covenant or the Mosaic law, the law handed to Moses, the tablets of the testimony, all of that. But we've gotta pay attention because Moses is gonna use a number of different terms to define this, but he begins by speaking of a new covenant. So if the old covenant was that, the law of Moses, there is a new covenant, a new promise, new agreement that was handed down through the finished work of Jesus. If the old covenant was the covenant of law, the new covenant is a covenant of grace. And what's happening to the church in Corinth is they're falling back into the covenant of the law because they've upheld it so highly. And Paul's saying, no, 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 we've been given a new ministry, a ministry of the new covenant. Then he says, not of the letter. So now he refers to the old covenant as the letter and the new covenant as the spirit, which is where we get the idea in our culture of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. So he's saying, you were given the old covenant of the letter of the law, but we've been given a new covenant of the spirit, the spirit of the law. And then he says this, the letter, the old covenant, the Mosaic law kills, but the spirit, the new covenant, the covenant of grace, it brings life. And this is his premise. This is his thesis for the rest of what we're gonna read this morning. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant kills, the New Covenant brings life. Verse seven, now if the ministry of death, and that escalated very quickly. So now he calls the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, the ministry of death, which is not what I would put on a business card, I don't think. Hey, I'm Jeremy, I'm the minister of death. How are you? Like that's not, I don't think I would, I don't. I would not do that unless I was a wrestler, then that would be my ministry. I'm the minister of death. That feels like a really good uh, wrestling nickname. But then he says, "So uh, the ministry—if the ministry of death, the old covenant, the law—was written on in letters on stone, the testimony—and if that came with such glory, such honors, such prestige, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. So now, picture, pick up what he's saying." He's saying there was an old covenant, the covenant of the law, the law of Moses, this ministry of death, and the ministry of death had glory. It had glory. And so much glory, he says, when he references back to Exodus 34, that Moses' face shined so much that the people could not gaze on its glory. But then he says this, which was being brought to an end. So now what he's saying is, yes, the old law, the old covenant, the law of Moses, the ministry of death, It had glory, but that glory was coming to an end. Yes, it was glorious. Yes, it made Moses' face shine. They couldn't look at it. Yes, all of that. But then he says this in verse eight. But will not the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, the ministry of grace, won't that have even more glory? If you thought that shined, wait till you hear about the new covenant with even more glory, he says in verse eight. Then verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, good gracious, Paul. Like, how do you feel about the law? Ministry of death. Now the ministry of condemnation is what condemns us to death. If there was glory there, then the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, right? The law of grace, the new covenant, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, the old covenant, the old Mosaic law, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, what once had glory has now come to have no glory at all because of the glory of the new covenant, the ministry of of grace and righteousness, because of the new covenant has more glory. It exceeds it in glory. So I want you to think about it like this. So Maybe a number of years ago, let's say you got a car and it, wasn't, it, was, either it was brand new or it was new to you and you, you liked it, you loved it, it had all the new things on it and you loved it. But over time, that car, the glory of that car began to fade away. And it got to the point where actually you hated driving that car because you weren't sure you were going to make it to where you were going every time you got in the car. Anybody have a car like that? I had a car in college that was held together literally with a paper clip to keep it from idling. That's what I had. It was an 88 Volkswagen and Jetta. Judge me in my skinny jeans if you want to. It's fine. But that's what, that's what I had. So that old car, right? I loved it at first. I was like, gosh, I, I'm just afraid to drive this car. And then, then maybe you get a new car, right? And now you have the new car that has all the things, and it seems like it makes that old car look even worse than it used to be. Some of you feel this way about when you get new kids, but that's a whole other conversation in parenting. But the, the new car The glory of the new, because it's so far exceeds, it almost feels like the old has no glory whatsoever. And that's what Paul is saying. There's so much glory in the new covenant that the old covenant, the ministry of death, has no more glory. Verse 11, for what was being brought to an end, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, what was being brought to an end came with glory. If that came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So now he's saying the old covenant was temporary. The new covenant, the covenant of grace is permanent. So therefore, it should have more glory. So what we're learning is that in the church of Corinth, what's happened is you've got people who are glorifying the old covenant so much that they actually believe the law is better than grace. Grace. Like they believed so much that the Mosaic law handed to Moses in Exodus 34 was so great that even if Jesus himself were to bring grace, he'd be like, yeah, but still not as cool as that thing with Moses. And he's using this account from Exodus 34 to show why Moses covered his face. Let's look at verse 12. And since we have such a hope, the hope of the new covenant that is permanent, that does not fade away, the new covenant of grace and the finished work of Jesus, because we have that, we are very bold. So there's boldness in the new covenant. Now watch this, verse 13, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face because of lack of boldness in the old covenant so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So now we're starting to get some understanding. What happened was that Moses' face was shining because he had been in the presence of God. And it was intimidating and scary to the people. And in his shining, he's declaring to them the law. And so what the connection had been made to the Israelites was, well then, the law must carry the glory. But the point wasn't that the law carried glory, it was the presence of God that carried glory. And so now what's happened, he's put a veil over his face so as to not distract them from what was actually going on, because he knows the power of the law is fading. And if his face were to fade... They would miss out on what was actually happening. So this account in Exodus 34 is actually a story about the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant, the law of Moses, was meant to point them to Jesus, the true glory of God. It was meant to point to the relationship and the presence of God, but it was too glorious for them, so they settled for the law. The relationship with God, the glory of the presence of God was too much, and so they settled for the law which is what Paul continues to say if we read verse 14 but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the israelites the jews when they read the old covenant that same veil remains unlifted because only through christ Is it taken away? And then he says this in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses, whenever the old covenant is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So this moment in Exodus 34 of the veil over Moses' head with the glory of the presence of God on his face, this moment set the stage for even what Jews believe today. They have so glorified the law that they've missed the glory of the new covenant. They've so glorified the old covenant of law-keeping and abiding and traditions and feasts and festivals that they've missed the glory of the presence of God. In and this is what he's saying. To this day, there's a veil over their hearts. Scott Hafman, who is a professor and an author, says from Sinai on, Israel has been hardened to the revelation of God's glory in her midst. This moment created something in them. But before we begin to think about them, I want us to think about us. Because the truth is, for you and for me, we're also tempted to glory in the law and to miss the presence of God in the midst of it. It's more palatable to accept the glory of the law, to accept Mosaic law, the ministry of death, because it's black and white, than to walk in the glory of God through the new covenant of grace and relationship. Often, many of us, particularly in the South, and particularly Baptists, we have grown to love walking in the knownness of the law instead of the unknown glory of grace. And this is what he's saying. So I'll say this, a wrong view of the law hardens our hearts to the presence of God. And you wanna know why you're not moved in worship? Because you've got a wrong view. Because a right view of the gospel of grace softens our hearts to the move of the spirit in the presence of God. A wrong view of the law hardens our hearts to the presence of God. And the truth is, like the Israelites, we love the law too more on that later. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You see how you remove the veil? You turn to Jesus. You don't turn to the law. Don't turn to a new law. Don't turn to something else. We, when you turn to Jesus, the veil of the law is gone. It's removed. Verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, with the the veil removed, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, into the image of the Lord, into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Now, watch this. The law does not transform you. The law is a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. It's the grace, the new covenant, that's the ministry of life that transforms us from one degree of glory to another. If you are depending upon the law to change your life, it will not change your life. It won't transform your heart, it won't soften your soul. It won't. But the gift of grace will transform you. But then Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. Isn't that frustrating? because I'd really like to jump 20 degrees at a time if I could, please. But those of us who are walking with Jesus, would you agree with this? It's just one click to the next, to the next, to the next. But it's not the law, it's the unveiled face of the glory of God through the new covenant of grace that's transforming us. Because he says at the end of verse 18, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The law will point out condemnation, will point out death, but it cannot bring you life. It cannot bring you transformation. So then if we keep reading, Paul's not done yet. He's gonna continue. Look at chapter four, verse one. Therefore, Because of all of that, because the old covenant is the ministry of death and condemnation, the new covenant is the gift of life and grace. Because of that, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, Paul says, I now have the ministry of the new covenant. I'm not a minister of death, I'm a minister of life. And because of that, we do not lose heart. You know what causes you to lose heart? The law causes you to lose heart. But the gift of grace only serves to reset your heart. Verse two, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, which is interesting because wouldn't you think it's the law people who are keeping God's word? And what Paul is saying is we've missed it because those of you who think you're so strict with the law, you're tampering, you're twisting God's word. And he says, we refuse. We've got this ministry of life and we're not gonna tamper it to try to control you with the ministry of death. So there's a twisting and a tampering that's caused some issues. It's the same thing for us in our culture today. I'm gonna talk about two of them this morning. And the first is moralistic therapeutic deism. And since you understand that, we can move on to the next one and it's fine. Moralistic therapeutic deism was a phrase that was coined back in 2005 um, by some authors who wrote a book specifically for student ministry, for youth pastors, because what they saw rising was the teaching of our students of this thing called moralistic therapeutic deism. If you grew up in church in the late 80s and through the 90s, you were taught this, most likely. You were most likely taught this twisted version of the gospel. Let's look at it word by word to give us an understanding. The word moralistic means there was an emphasis on morality. It means that the Bible was used to teach morality and good behavior. It's why we twisted the way we taught David and Goliath to kids, the way we taught Jonah to kids. It's it's why we twisted it into teaching now many churches in their children's ministry are now teaching kind of moral values as opposed to what the Bible actually says. Because it's moral. The Bible is a moral handbook. That's the belief. The Bible's not a moral handbook. It's a story about the redemption of all mankind to the person of Jesus. That's moralistic. Therapeutic means there's an emphasis on feeling good. The Bible became a self-help book. And our Christian bookstores are littered with them. It's therapeutic. The Bible then is used to bring about good feelings. And if it doesn't feel good, then it must not be from God. Deism. The quote they use on deism is that God is something like a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of your problems that arise, and professionally helps people feel good about themselves, but does not become too personally involved in the process. This false teaching made its way into many of our hearts and souls, and many of you today are having to unravel, if you're like me, having to unravel what you learned through moralistic therapeutic deism. Because you're beginning to see the Bible doesn't always make you feel good. You're beginning to see the Bible doesn't always tell you about morality. It tells you about Jesus. But this twisting became a new law, became a new law for people. The second thing I want to talk about is legalism. Legalism is an overemphasis on the law. You become a legalist. And there are three three ways here I want to talk about. First is that we add requirements to earning or keeping salvation. Legalism would teach, yeah, yeah, by the finished work of Jesus, sure, but also by this. That's how you earn or keep salvation. Secondly, you create new rules or laws for Christianity Well, you can't be a Christian and this. Thirdly, legalism teaches the idea of following God's commands with the intent of earning something. That God has become a cosmic vending machine. If you do good, you'll get Good rather than doing things God loves because we love him. Now, both of these, moralistic, therapeutic deism and legalism are man-centered, old covenant ideas. They're just a new iteration of the law, the old covenant. And that's what we like about it. What we like about legalism is it just tells me what to do because sometimes all we want is just tell me what to do. Tell me what I can do and what I can't do and I'll figure out how to live inside of that. We like that. We like moralistic therapeutic deism because it makes us feel good. And it makes us feel like we're doing things right when we're good, moral people in the South. Because we love the law too. We love it so much. We wouldn't say we do because it sounds weird to say, but we love it. And here are three reasons why we love the law because it gives us power, the law gives us the power. If I know what I have to do to earn salvation or keep salvation, then it's up to me to do it. I like that. The idea of grace gives God all the power, and he decides. But the law gives us the power. It gives us the power when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our sanctification. The law gives us the power. The law gives us power in our communities, in our cities, in our nation. The law does that. Secondly, we love the law because it gives us pride. Pride. The law makes us an arrogant people. The law gives us um, degrees of sin. The law gives us ways to uh, condemn someone with a larger sin, and still accept somebody with a smaller sin. It gives us pride, it puffs us up. Look at me, look what I'm doing, look what I've done. Because I've checked the boxes, I must be better than you because you haven't checked the boxes. But ultimately, we love the law because it gives us permission. It gives us permission to condemn and criticize and ridicule. We love the law. And I want you to hear me clearly on this as Christians in the culture today. It is one thing to believe that sin is sin. For us to believe that homosexuality is a sin, that everything with transgender, all of that is sinful. We can believe that without mocking the people who struggle with it. We feel like the law gives us permission to criticize and condemn and to judge. Here's the problem. The moment you speak up like that in a small group or in our church or in a a different ministry, you don't know in the room there are people who are struggling with that very thing. And the moment you make fun of someone and you criticize and you jump to conclusions, you've lost that person's hope at reconciliation. But the law gives us permission. I can laugh about it and feel like I'm better than you. No, no, no. The gospel of grace tells you you cannot do that. The gospel of grace tells you that might be their sin, what's yours? The law gives us power and pride and permission. And that's why we like it. We all wanna feel powerful. We all wanna feel good about something that we're doing and we all want to be given permission to do what we want to do. And the law gives us all of that. So Paul continues, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna... uh, practice cunning, or tamper with God's word. Instead, by the open statement of the truth, by being open before you, by being honest before you, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Instead of twisting and tampering with God's word, we're gonna live open and honest lives. This is what the Bible says. This is who we are. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. We're not veiling it through the law. We're not doing it. In their case, and those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You wanna know why people aren't coming to faith? Because the God of this world has blinded them. It shouldn't be a shock to you. Verse five, for what we proclaim is not ourselves which is what the law does, what legalism and moralistic therapeutic deism do. They they proclaim ourselves as Lord. Instead, he says, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse eight, or six. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, which takes us back to Exodus 34. We've got something shining too. In our hearts, To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, not of Moses, not of you, not of me, but in the face of Jesus Christ. So in us being in the presence of God, we also have a light inside of us. And the point is to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God through Jesus. That light is not meant to puff us up. That light is meant for us to declare good news to the world. Verse seven, but... We have this treasure, this peculiar treasure, this heavy gift of the light of the gospel in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That treasure of the gospel, that treasure of presence and intimacy with God has been given to us in jars of clay. Some of your translations say earthen vessels. The idea is a pot that is common cheap, easily broken, and replaceable. But power, pride, and permission don't speak to that, do they? Power, pride, and permission speak to strength. But the gospel speaks to our weakness. What we've been given should not be hidden behind power and pride and permission. It should be put on display by our brokenness and commonality and fragility. For this reason, That the power would be shown to belong to God and not to us. And listen, church, if we lose this, we've lost everything. If we lose being jars of clay, we've lost it all. The moment the church pursues power, we've lost the influence of the gospel the moment we pursue it politically or in society or in entertainment, the moment that we try to be more entertaining than Disney, that we try to be more powerful than a government, the moment we do that, we've lost any shot we have at transforming the world because the law doesn't transform, the spirit of grace transforms. And so what's happened for us in the church is that we've lost influence because we're masquerading ourselves as powerful And the truth is, we're just broken vessels with the treasure of the gospel inside of us. When we forget our vulnerabilities, we've lost the gospel. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. I'm not hiding from it. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. We're always in our suffering. We're reminded of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. There's no resurrection without death. And So while we experience death, we're leading towards resurrection. And the moment we pursue power and pride and permission, we neglect the power of death, which then negates the power of Resurrection. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh and this jar of clay. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And the problem for the church is that we haven't willingly given ourselves over to death that the life of culture might be risen. Instead, we've held on to life and we've watched the culture die on our watch. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. He's saying, I'm not hiding behind it. I believe this and so I'm speaking it. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will, also, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God, not to the glory of ourselves, That's the glory of our morality or our our therapy, but instead in glory to God. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. If you're losing heart today, can I just tell you it's because you depended upon the law instead of on the grace of Jesus. Because the grace of Jesus never runs out, never causes us to lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day, so we don't need a veil. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means temporary, temporal, which is a reference back to the old covenant. The old covenant, the law is seen, but it's temporary. Instead, we turn our eyes to the things that are unseen, the gospel of grace, because that is eternal. So Moses covering his glowing face from the presence of God, because what the people wanted was the law, not the presence of God, has now caused issues. And for you and for me, here's the thing we have to wrestle with. Do you want the presence of God? Or do you want the law? Which do you want? Because what Paul is saying is the glory of God is not found in the ministry of death. It's found that the ministry of death led us to the ministry of life. And in the gospel of grace, we find the presence of God. In Japan, there's a sacred ancient art form. It's called kintsugi. And in kintsugi, it's a 400 year art form. They would take clay pots and bowls. And as they were, they'd be worth something. But the artist would intentionally break that bowl. And instead of putting the bowl back together exactly how it was, the artist would melt pure gold and would use the gold then to create the seams by which he or she would reassemble this bowl. It's built on the idea that embracing flaws and imperfections, you can create an even stronger, more beautiful piece of art. Every break is unique. And instead of repairing an item like new, this 400-year-old technique actually highlights the scars as part of the design. You know what you're doing in running back to the law to try to fake your perfection and cover your imperfection is that you're actually making yourself less valuable. And the moment you run towards grace, run toward the refiner's fire of gold that would seal us through the gospel, your life becomes more valuable. And that work of art that you are becomes more prominently on display to the world, not pointing to the bowl, but pointing to the gold of the gospel of Jesus. But we run from it and we cover it up because you get to church on Sunday and somebody says, How are you doing? You say, Brother, I'm blessed and highly favored. My marriage is falling apart, my kids in prison. But today, I'm blessed and highly favored. Well, how are you doing? I'm better than I deserve. That's great. It's good, I'm fine. The world doesn't need good, fine people. The world needs people who admit their brokenness and who say, yeah, yeah, but I've been put back together through the gold of Jesus Christ and I love where I am right now. The moment we lose our fragility, we've lost any impact we have in the world. And our faking it until we're making it isn't helping anyone. And culture is dying while we withhold life. But to get life to the culture, we first have to die to ourselves. But it's why we love the law, isn't it? Because it gives us power and pride and permission. And we can judge the world all while faking our perfection. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna challenge us a bit here this morning just to be honest and real. Because there are many of us who are feeling things that we're afraid to admit because we think we're the only one. And the power of the gospel is that you can say, oh yeah, me too. Oh, you struggle with sin? Yeah, me too. Oh, you're, you're in a tough spot in your marriage? Yeah, me too. I was there. So here's one I want to ask. How many of you today are happy? You can raise your hand. You're allowed to be happy in church. Would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, today I'm, I'm happy. I feel happy today. You can put your hand up and leave it up. Okay. You can put it back down now. Those of you who are happy, I'm gonna give you three words to help you define where your happiness comes from. Content, peaceful, and optimistic. How many of you happy people would say that you feel content today? You're happy because you're content. How many of you would say you're happy because you're peaceful, you're at peace? Maybe you'd say you're optimistic. Your happiness comes from your optimism. Okay. But the truth is, some of us today are Sad. How many of you today would just say sad? You just feel sad today. You can raise your hand and hold it up. Be honest. You feel sad. Now, I'm going to give you three words. Are you sad because you're lonely? Are you in despair, meaning you're hopeless? Or you feel hurt? How many of you would say you feel lonely? You're sad because you feel lonely today. You can put your hand up. How many of you would say you feel sad because you are in despair? You feel hopeless. Something has happened. You're hopeless. How many of you feel hurt today? Somebody hurt you, someone hurt you. How many of you today would say, no, I'm not happy or sad, I'm just angry. I'm just flat out angry. Would you raise your hand? I just feel angry today. Three words for your anger. Do you feel let down? Do you feel frustrated? Maybe you feel distant. How many of you in your anger would say, yeah, I'm angry because I feel let down. I feel disappointed. I feel let down by someone, by God today. Praise the Lord for your honesty. Secondly, would say, um, No, I feel frustrated. My anger is from, from frustration. What about distant? You just feel distant and lost, not connected. Maybe it's not happy or sad or angry. Maybe today you just feel bad. It's just a malaise. I just feel bad today. Anybody today just feel bad? You kind of woke up just feeling bad? Anybody? Three words maybe you feel tired, stressed, or bored. How many of you today would say, Yeah, I feel tired. I just feel worn out today. You guys don't count. You didn't sleep last night. <laughs> tired. How many would say, No, 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 I feel stressed. I just feel stressed, overwhelmingly stressed today. How about bored? Anybody just feel bored with life? It just kind of goes and goes, and I've got no interests. Anybody here today feeling fearful? Do you raise your hand? I'm fearful about something. I'm afraid of news that's coming, I'm afraid of things in the future. Three words for your fearfulness. Anxious, insecure, or you feel weak. How many of you feel anxious? There's an anxiety that you're wrestling. What about insecurity? You just feel insecure, like you're gonna get found out. Insecure, how many of you feel weak today? Just not strong enough to handle what's ahead. All right, how many of you today are struggling with health? Would you just raise your hand? I need, my health is failing. Friends and family whose health is failing, you just raise your hand high if you can. How many of you are struggling in your marriage? Would you raise your hand? Marriage just isn't what it was a few weeks ago or years or months ago. Marriage is hard. Anybody struggling with your singleness today? I feel lonely. I don't want to be single. Anybody struggling with the guilt of past sins today? Just keeps creeping its head. You just feel guilty and ashamed. Anybody struggling with repetitive sins and strongholds today? You're fighting the good fight, but it just feels like it keeps coming back up. Strongholds and sin. How about this? Anybody struggling with faith today, just having a hard time believing that God is who he says he is? feel like he's not come through on a few things. We've got nothing if we don't have that. If we don't have honest dialogue and real conversation, we've got nothing. I want you to hear that. If you're gonna come and fake it, there are plenty of churches you can go to. I don't want this to be one of them. We've got nothing. We've got no influence. We've got no community. We've got no shot. If we don't first recognize that we are jars of clay, earthen vessels. So if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes this morning, I just want to think through some of this here. There's something within us that is drawn to the idea of law. We're drawn to the idea that we can control things. We're drawn to the idea that we can tell other people what to do. We're drawn to that. And because we're drawn to that, we're drawn to people like that. But Jesus wasn't like that. The power of Jesus didn't come from those things, the power of Jesus came from the offer of grace and mercy in our time of need. And so maybe today what has to happen is you gotta repent from your love of the law today. You've gotta repent from it because it's made you an arrogant, vengeful person. And you're critical and condemning. And maybe you wouldn't say it out loud in such a condemning way, but you'll joke about it to cover it by humor. got to repent. Life isn't found there. Transformation isn't found there. Transformation is found in the law of grace, in the ministry of life and righteousness. So maybe today you've got to repent in your chair. You can appear and repent. You just need to sit and repent of it, confess it and repent, turn from it. Maybe some of us are holding on to things that we're afraid to admit that we wrestle with and struggle with. And you need to know there's probably someone else who needs to hear you say it today. And by God's providence, they might just be in your small group or they might just live in your house. And parents, maybe you've run toward the law in your home instead of grace. Maybe today what's happened for you is you tried the law thing, thinking that was what Jesus was all about. And What you learned today is that's actually not what he was about. The law was pointing to him that he would fulfill it and satisfy it that you might be set free in Grace. And so the gift today is that you can receive the life, the death of Jesus as yours, Yours, and now you can walk in life. When you admit that you're a jar of clay, you're weak and you're fragile and a sinner in need of a savior. And this savior is Jesus who has gifted you with the gift of grace today. Father, I love you and I'm thankful for you and for these people. Thankful for our never-ending, ongoing journey towards more of this, towards more of honesty and repentance God, would you remind us today that we are simply jars of clay, that we're broken vessels that you have chosen to declare your light through. And when we find that, God, we don't lose heart because we know whatever brokenness we find in the world, we found that same thing in us and you've healed that. So God, would you heal and restore and redeem today? Make your gospel go forth in Jesus' name, amen.